The Asian Canadian and Asian Migration Studies program would like to acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the traditional, unceded, ancestral homelands of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh First Nations. Hello and welcome to the ACAM podcast. We hope that this podcast can be a way to continue building connections between ACAM students, staff, faculty, and community partners, while also providing them with a platform to share similar work they've been doing during this time. I'm your host, Isa, and we also have a guest host this week, Olivia. Hi, my name is Olivia Lim, and I'm the Special Projects Coordinator at ACAM. Our guest this week is Wendy Yip, University Ambassador at UBC since 2016. She is also the President of the Pacific Canada Heritage Centre Museum of Migration, as well as a longtime supporter of ACAM. Alongside her husband, outgoing UBC President Santa Ono, Wendy will be relocating to Michigan, marking the end of her role with UBC. We caught up with Wendy to get her reflections on her work as University Ambassador, her involvement with PCHC, and her experience with community advocacy work. Let's take a listen. Thank you so much for joining us today. Can you introduce yourself to our listeners? It's a pleasure to be here. I'm Wendy Yip, University Ambassador for the University of British Columbia, UBC. So as the Asian Canadian and Asian Migration Studies program, we're always interested in hearing about people's own experiences of migration. So could you tell me a little bit more about um, your family and your migration stories? It's a little complex for me. I actually was born in Toronto, Ontario, um, and I grew up mostly in Montreal. And I've spent many years in other places. (laughs) So my parents were from China originally, and they came in that sort of wave of the 1950s, 60s when immigration opened up. And they both came to um, study university. My father actually went, you know, during the upheaval after World War II, their family moved from Shanghai to Hong Kong. Then he went to London. He actually took a one-month ship shipping route through the Suez Canal. Can you imagine that? From Hong Kong all the way over to England, like that. Anyway, so he went from there, and then because he was very proud of China, and he you know, went with the Chinese Student Society over there, and they showed some films and things like that, that he became suspect. So after he got his first degree at Imperial College in England, he was not renewed. He was supposed to have been uh, doing a grad studies with a Nobel laureate, apparently, but he was not renewed. His visa was not renewed. So then he had to go to Canada and he went to Kingston, went to Queen's University to do his master's, PhD in Toronto. And he met my mother, who went from Hong Kong also. They did not know each other. She's, you know, Cantonese. She went to Ottawa for her undergraduate, um, then McGill for medicine. And then they met while she was interning and he did his PhD. In, you know, Chinese Student Society Party in Montreal because there weren't that many numbers. So he came back from Kingston to go there and they met and then they married and they moved sort of along the Trans-Canada Highway between Montreal and Toronto. I was born. Um, Then actually, because they were in grad studies, they sent me off to live with my grandmother or my grandmother said, you are not giving my first grandchild to be cared for strangers. So, so she came and collected me uh, at the age of eight months, and I basically spent uh, two and a half years in Hong Kong. So my first language is actually Cantonese. Um, and then afterwards, my, that was my paternal, my, my mama. And then my 
paternal grandmother, my papa, um, brought me back and she was going to immigrate and settle in Canada. So she brought me back to Canada, rejoined, rejoined with my parents who had settled in Montreal at this point. And um, she was defeated by the winter, went home. <laughs> She's not, not for me. Uh, but we stayed on in Montreal. My father uh, taught at McGill University in Engineering and my mother um, opened up a pediatric practice. And um, my sister came along about a year later, and then pretty much we moved on. I, I basically went to a convent school there, uh, uh, you know, girls' convent school only because the public schools were on strike one year. And then, uh, so I went to Sacred Heart School. It looks like a dungeon. And my mother only knew about it because she did a house call on some of the borders. <laughs> is, we're not very planned. It's sort of like, oh, you shouldn't miss school. Therefore, maybe let's do this one. And then um, after that, CEGEP, which is the junior college, you know, like grade 12, first year university. Um, and then went to McGill um, and did my undergrad in um, immunology. Did an honors program, you know, pre-med route like my mom. Um, but well, I did all sorts of interesting things. My father really liked to instill in us a love of Chinese culture because he had had a classical Chinese education younger as a younger child. And um, he'd bring us to the McGill Chinese Student Society of Functions, you know, Lunar New Year festivities. Uh, when st things started opening up, he would take us to Chinese Beijing opera coming over here. I grew up listening to it. At some point, my grandmother came over and started living with us. So you'd hear the Chinese opera. My father would sort of chanted sometimes on long road trips down the 401 you know slapping his thigh to keep himself awake and also keep the you know, percussion so i grew up with this mix of things you know which which i thought was you know very standard but i don't think so talking to a lot of people in your generation the younger um that 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 love and that understanding of chinese culture i think i was lucky because i was the second generation you know born but still had ties and my parents could speak both English and Chinese. So, you know, they were bridging. They were sort of, they came as 18, 19 year olds. And so they had a foot in each culture. So I, I really benefited from that. My sister and I did. You know, I didn't quite get into med school the first time uh, I applied. So then I did a master's, continued on with my research project from my undergrad. And then I met Santa. Well, I actually met him during my last year because we were in the same research group. His PhD supervisor at McGill was a researcher with me, you know, and then um, we started dating. Nobody knew because <laughs> we're like, oh, we don't need the gossip. <laughs> and, um, but, and it was fine, you know, because he would come over and then he would play cello. And I found that interesting. I was doing uh, a little bit. Of, I played the piano. And so I had a date to do something with a flutist who was in my lab. And then I said, oh, well, why don't you join us? <laughs> so you so think I was sitting on him. But anyway, we did this you know, little trio of music. And that's sort of what brought us together a little bit, science and music. And, um, you know, the flutist had to go home because she had a child to care for. So my parents would say at our wedding, well, we heard that she was going to be in the trio, but when we got home, it was only a duet. So um, that's how it got. And then, so still migrating. So because he, so most of you from UBC know and have heard that Santa was born in Vancouver. And his father was the professor of mathematics here um, from Japan through France for themselves. Actually, he did a fellowship in France. Then here, so his eldest brother was born in Japan. He was born in Vancouver. 
And then his father kept, you know, in, in search of Math Mecca, which was sort of Princeton Advanced Institute. And then he went to the closest university he could, which is University of Pennsylvania. And that's where his youngest brother was born. So each of the brothers had a different citizenship actually growing up, Japanese, Canadian, and American. <laughs> so, and then to find his Canadian roots, Sana decided, you know, after um, finishing, he did Chicago as an undergraduate. He came up to do his PhD in makeup. That's how I met him. So then because of that, he said, look, there's more money for research because he does um, molecular biology, molecular immunology. So I followed him to the States. So we went to Boston, Baltimore, Boston, London, uh, Atlanta, Cincinnati, and here. Um, and at each move, it was sort of a, a professional move because I think in academia, you know, first he had to do a postdoctorate after his PhD, particularly in science, where you just build up more body of work. And then after that, he got his assistant professorship. And I got my law degree while he was doing his postdoc. And so then, you know, I moved, you know, but I, sometimes we were out of sync. Sometimes I'd follow him a couple of months later, right? And then, because you just have to follow where the jobs are as you're doing your professional career. So we went up and down the sort of east coast of the U.S. And then... Um, he went to England because that was a full professorship and an endowed chair. And then after that, because he's good with people skills, he ran his own lab. People started coming after him for, uh, for the um, management level and for administration in the university. And so that's how we came back to the States and went to Atlanta. But, you know, I think this is very similar for everybody. You know, our parents' generation and um, your parents' generation that we're sort of continuing is that you have to sort of follow the economic opportunity. I really enjoy the journey. It's not what I expected when I started off in life. I thought I'd pretty much live and die in Montreal. Uh, but it's it's been very interesting. And, and I call myself a cross-pollinator now because if I see something here and I go into a new situation, say, did you know, have you ever tried it this way? They do it that this way over there. And it's actually worked quite well. And we might try it. So I sort of do that. That's my role. In, that I've uh, uh, adopted for myself. And so what was your involvement with Asian American community work prior to coming to Vancouver? So um, I uh, was active, I think through my father's example, you know, I became active in the McGill Chinese Student Society. And that was really about uh, connecting to our cultural heritage. And so there were a lot of Hong Kong students, not so many from Taiwan or mainland China at that time, because we're talking the 80s. Okay, but a lot of people coming from Hong Kong. Um, and so we would do, you know, cultural shows. And and, um, and that was sort of a, a really good way for me to sort of appreciate and have pride, right, in, in, the, in the culture that's not European. Uh, and then afterwards, I uh, was, you know, explored medicine, science. And then I always liked to argue with my father, so I went to law school. And actually, that is where I really learned advocacy for, uh, you know, the Asian immigrant community in North America. Um, I was part of a class before, in, I went to Boston University Law School, and before me, there were like maybe five Asians in the whole school of about 400 law students. My year was a big entering class of 30. And suddenly, it was sort of like, oh, maybe law is an okay thing. Maybe we don't have to do just math and science and medicine and engineering, right? So it was suddenly like, because there's a bigger second generation where we're fluent, we've grown up, grown up in North America, we felt comfortable doing this. And um, that's where I got involved with the Asian American law students. 
Um, and uh, then there was there were meetings of the National Asian American Law Students Association. And there, it was really very interesting because at that time when we had these conferences, some people came to speak about the work on the redress, the Japanese American redress. Um, I have mentors, you know, who I worked with later who worked on that, you know, as they were young lawyers. And then there was also, I remember um, meeting Fred Korematsu, and he's one of these leading cases uh, challenging the constitutionality of uh, the internment in the U.S. And he came to speak to us students, and it was just this connection with history, you know, and it was lovely to, to get that. You know, he told us how, you know, he's just a young guy, and he did not want to go to the internment camps because he had a white girlfriend. And he stayed in Seattle, and that's why he wanted, you know, he challenged it because of his personal circumstances, but then he had the courage and convictions to step it out. And, you know, later on, it's only in the last 10 years that they've actually overturned his conviction, right, on the books, right? So these are, when you see the stories, oh, and I, and I remember the movie came out when I was right in the middle of law school, it was Who Killed Vincent Chin, right? And that was made by some Harvard students. Uh, and we showed it, and we actually, at some point along the way, met the mother of Vincent Chin, who came out, you know, in her broken English. She went to Hong Kong. He was our only son. Very sad. That was the one where, who was the Chinese-American going out for his bachelor's party. And then there were two unemployed white Detroit auto workers, a man and his son-in-law, who got just were so mad. And then they picked a fight, and then they went after him with a, basket, a baseball bat and, you know, killed him the day before his wedding. And so these sort of things were very impactful, you know, because I grew up in sort of sheltered, you know, Quebec. We had Anglophone and, uh, you know, Francophone issues, but we didn't have this actual straight out violence, right? Uh, and, and that really energized me. So I always stayed active with the Asian American Lawyers Association. Um, I was on the board of the National Asian American Bar Association, and I've kept track of these things. So I used my science, and I did patent law, but I was always interested in these issues. I did, you know, legal services. You know, I helped with a, a Chinese-Vietnamese uh, immigrant to help her get divorced, you know, because I had mentors who had started out like an Asian outreach project in Boston. You know, and so this... When you have those people who step out and, and make a difference in a community, it energizes you. And I sort of felt, even if I have to make money to pay off my law school loans, I would still engage and help. And I actually went and did a law, uh, a legal internship, a legal fellowship at the National Asian American, no, National Asian Pacific American Legal Consortium, called NAPOC for short. It then became... Uh, what is now known as AAJC, Advancing uh, Equity. So that's the Asian American Justice Center in D.C., right? Um, it had just been started a few years before, probably around 1994, 95. I joined there, 95, 96. And uh, the person I worked for, Karen Narasaki, was very influential. She um, had been also at a big law firm before and then was not happy. Um, she'd gone to Yale Law. So she became the advocate for the Japanese American Citizens League. So she had been active with the redress movement. And she was <clears throat> a representative advocate for the, that community in D.C. And then she took on this leadership of this after some an academic person had really started this consortium. And the consortium was um, really an effort for three centers. There was an Asian American, um, ALDEF, Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund based in New York City. And then there was an Asian Law Caucus based in San Francisco. And then there was an Asian Pacific American Legal Center based in LA. But they're saying, we're working regionally, but a lot of things that are being decided 
or where they could get funding is in DC. And so that's why they created this, you know, office so that there would be a voice. And so I came in in the early years, I had another friend who had been there and I worked actually on affirmative action issues. That was the year because that time was the time when there was the California Civil Rights Initiative and the era where they're trying to attack all these uh, affirmative actions, trying to get people of color into the universities, right? And of course they used the new immigrants, the new Asian immigrants, in particular in California, use this as a wedge issue to try, try to divide the community. These new immigrants don't understand the history from before. And we probably see that a little bit of in Canada too, right? That they, they were saying, well, you know, you just have to do well and that's fine. It's just marked, but it's not that because it's what sort of school system did, you know, you grow up in and who gets to UBC or who gets to any university, it's not good if it's only just marks, if it's only all, you know, a certain type of person, right? Uh, and and so that's uh, that was really for me a training ground because, you know, I, I sort of came from an immigrant and I sort of science background, you sort of say it's, it looks attractive to say it's a meritocracy, but then you realize it isn't. I was learning at, uh, what has become the Asian American Justice Center and advancing equity, you know, the importance of fighting about, back against the narratives that are often given from a very sort of white-centric view, you know, and they say, oh, these are the rules, you just have to follow rules, but who set the rules in the first place, right? And so I think uh, learning all these things from the Asian American con uh, context where they really had to fight a lot, because of course they had the you know, segregation was in the face, and um, that actually even applied to Asians as somewhat, you know, we don't hear about it as much. But, you know, being conscious at that era that, you know, you're the honorary white, right? And that's how the Asian American, you know, and here, you know, Asian Canadian community is sort of used as a weapon against other uh, minorities that have had different experiences, you know, but we are really human under all this, right? We're, you know, if we want to say we're, we're actually even 98% in our DNA is similar to chips. So how can we say that, you know, one group of humans is better than the other, right? And so it's really about, you know, how do you um, balance and make sure that the system is uh, conducive to, um, or is conducive or is open so that students and whoever, you know, what, okay, in the setting of schools, you know, how can you make the academic institution more responsive and really do its mission of, of educating the public, right? We don't, we know, this should not be uh, a reward system. It should really be, you know, a communal investment in our future, in our younger generation. So how can we do it in such a way as uh, to uh, maximize the potential, you know, for everyone? And so I think you're in an era post that where it's beginning to open up. It's still not perfect because, you know, it's difficult. There's always some backsliding. Some people say, well, why isn't it like the way it used to be? And so they see the campus and they see that it's, you know, so many Asians there, you know, and they assume they're foreign students. They're saying, why are we letting in so many foreign students? And so I think um, that's when you see that racism is still at play, right? you know, that A, there's assumption we're foreign. Okay, I look foreign maybe, yeah, but I'm second generation, you know? My parents were in, educated in Canada, not just myself. So, uh, and then, you know, Henry Yu and other people, they have like fourth, fifth generations, right? 
who built you know, the fishing and the agricultural industries here in the West Coast. It wasn't European Americans. They only came later because, of course, Trans-Pacific migration was ahead of that. So they brought technology here, right? And that's where I think it's important for us to tell our stories, right? And, and for me, it is definitely that we need to uh, tell more stories of the Asian Canadian uh, population here. But it's just as important for us to share with other communities. We are all immigrants here, except for our indigenous hosts who've been here nine, 10,000 years. Um, you know, it's shameful, our history. We need to learn. We certainly as new immigrants, we need to learn this history. Otherwise we get sucked into that whole meritocracy argument. Um, and that it does not advance us as a country, right? I think, you know, Canada is one of these liberal democracies and we've had gotten a lot of positive feedback for that. When we took in Syrians, I remember when I came here, we came to UBC in 2016, they just opened up, they'd taken a bunch of Syrian refugees, we're trying to open the gates to Afghanistani. We could do better on that, we're opening our gate, close doors to Ukrainian. That's how this country has been built, you know? And we have to take the lessons from our indigenous hosts where they welcome, they said, sure, there's plenty of space. We can be mutually respectful respect how we use this land, but make space for each other. There's plenty. We just have to learn how to share, right? And so I think that for me has been the, the seminal reason for uh, my wanting to engage. You know, I, I, I saw that Asian Canadian Asian Migration Studies here is fairly young. I mean, uh, the first year I was here, Chris Lee came to talk to me and said, you know, you like this course. And I took uh, Yoshizawa's course, you know, on the filmmaking. That's wonderful. He's a great mentor for students to teach students how to talk to the older generation and how to get these migration stories and fill in all the missing gaps in our history. And from there, we then can turn around to talk to other people, the newest immigrants, you know, and that's what I've been doing a little bit with the Museum of Migration Society, PCHC, you know, where we are trying to get a lot of stories in from the newest immigrants from the last 50 years, because um, it's not, it's a living country. History is not static. It keeps evolving. Uh, and, and it's up to us really to to make sure that we, we give the input into this. So um, really that's sort of my migration history into going from science into, you know, advocacy, social justice, history. Um, it's fascinating, it's interesting, it's compelling. Um, looking back at your time at UBC, um, what was your favorite thing that you were a part of as university ambassador? I have to say it is the Asian Canadian Asian Migration Studies, um, since I, I, I got involved first and foremost from that. Um, you know, it's a little bit too bad that we had the COVID pandemic, because a lot of the uh, community building is best done in person. And there have been so many wonderful uh, events that ACAM's done. Um, uh, a very special one is that we hosted the ACAM fifth, uh, fifth anniversary. Now we're at the 10th anniversary. Um, and then there was also that sort of anniversary again of the Day of Justice, where they commemorated how they had given the honorary degrees of justice to the Japanese Canadian students who had been expelled. I think there were like 76 who had been expelled, right? And they did a degree of justice about 2012. And so when we were here, we got to do the sort of that, you know, um, uh, anniversary celebration. 
and there was actually one of the students. I'm not sure if he's a lifestyle. He might still be. He lives in Tapestry Village, right, in the retirement community here. So he could actually come here, right, along with Mary and Tosh Kitagawa, who, who worked tirelessly to get those stories and to identify the students. I mean, these, um, these are so moving when you see young people working on them and you see also, you know, the, the older people who had to go through these difficulties and then they had to fight for rights. And those rights were what, made the system more open to your generation, right? So I love these events where, you know, you pull together the different generations, you know, and you get to see things working together. Let's talk about your time as the president of the Pacific Canada Heritage Centre. Can you tell us a bit more about what the PCHC does and your experience with the organization? So the other part of that is um, it's also the Museum of Migration. So MOM or something. Um, I have stepped in there, um, you know, it's, it's at an inflection point. It's 11 years old now. Uh, we have an end goal to have a physical museum on migration um, because we do think it's important to have that sort of visibility uh, on the West Coast. There is nothing here. What we have is Pier 21, which is the Museum of Immigration in Halifax. I've been there, it's, it's good. Um, it's a little static. I mean, the space shows the Pier 21, right? Where people stepped off the boats from across the Atlantic to enter and, and start camp. It's an important story to pull, but it's only half the story, right? And so I then asked, as an afterthought, uh, because people were a little bit upset that it didn't tell enough of the stories of the rest of Canada and Trans-Pacific Migration, they started this society, Pacific Canada Heritage Centre Museum of Migration Society, PCHC for short. And because of their advocacy, they did get some videos in of some West Coast and early immigrants like Winnie Chung and Wally Chung, whose Chung collection is here, um, and some other people from the West Coast, and I think it's up on their website. But if you walk into a physical space, it doesn't really reflect it, right? So we need something here, because if you look in the US, you've got Ellis Island, but you also have Angel Island. So on both coasts, they have places where they celebrate the arrival of immigrants and uh, document their struggles and you know the difficulties and you know even particularly in the West Coast Angel Island, right? Uh, the difficulties for Asian immigrants, right? Uh, who were d detained for a long time, right? Um, so we need that sort of place to have that story. Now, we're not stuck on having a building right now. I think it's more important that we need to make the case for it. And that's why we have really focused in during my presidency using technology to um, record the stories. I mean, many of our people come out of ACAM UBC. You know, Henry Yu has shared his ability. He was a co-founding member of that and he's back on our board. And he's helped us, um, and other ACAM students have helped us to teach our members and other people how to just collect their stories. It doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be a chronology. It's just something that's meaningful, that documents some part of your life here in Canada as an immigrant or your, or your parents, or use this opportunity to talk to your aging grandparents, right? That's what you're doing at ACAM. And that's what we're trying to do here, but amongst different communities, and we're using the uh, YouTube channel to post some of these stories, you know, and they're variable quality. Um, at the first part, it was um, with Winnie. She, she did a lot of this food and history, food and culture that she did with international students here at UBC. 
And she sort of brought that uh, modus operandi over to PCHE. And it is, it is a really good way when you use the food as an entry point to talk to people. Everybody's got to eat. And everybody has sort of fond memories of their food, of their cultural food, right? It doesn't stop there, but it's a good entryway. So a lot of, in the beginning years, I think they had a lot more events. And then, of course, COVID, we couldn't so much. So we got creative. We tried to have webinars. We tried to have discussions. Uh, and now, as we were able to come back together, you know, we had a hybrid last year banquet of stories. In the past, it was always fully in person, never completely recorded. I think they had a couple of, like, uh, overviews done by ACAM students. So this time we've recorded the whole thing. We've put everything on the YouTube, but we're also coming back and trying to do, you know, more meaningful little um, vignettes of it. But that allowed actually hundreds of people from across the country uh, to participate or to listen in after the fact to the stories. We had storytellers from Syria, from, um, uh, from Sudan, from um, Afghanistan and, uh, from other places to tell about their uh, experiences as refugees coming to Canada. Um, and that sort of thing is important. So we can continue that. We've gotten some grants to continue more of the story collection to share it. This year, as part of the, uh, we got a Fairs and Festival Emergency Recovery Act. So we were partly to stimulate economy, but this is how you know we are adept and we are trying to um, use whatever funds are available to keep you know, bringing for the mission, we actually had a, a story fest out in the Italian Cultural Center and again brought people from different uh, communities together to share the stories. But then we also did a road trip and went out to Paldi and I think we met up with some of the, uh, the ACAM students out there, uh, Paldi being the, one of the first really multicultural cities in Vancouver. It was uh, a South Asian owned lumber mill and we met uh, somebody who was the daughter-in-law who's actually, I think, Caucasian, Canadian, but married to, you know, the, the son of, of South Asian descent. So very much an, uh, representing how we are melding and have a mosaic of different communities living together. And she was saying it was a lovely community because everybody felt free and they respected each other. And, you know, of course it died because the lumber town died, but it was important for us as members to see that, that story and then to go to Victoria and see you know, the influence of all many different communities there. So this is how we're, we're using creative means and, and different, you know, virtual and, and meeting in person and making the case and using technology to record these stories. And then down the road, you know, we do hope to have a museum of migration physically. Maybe we'll share a space because, you know, in the past year or two years, we've got the Chinese Canadian Museum coming online, and then we've had the China, Chinatown Storytelling Center that was a effort by Carol Lee and, and some friends just to revitalize Chinatown. So there's a lot of building space that might become available where we could share saying, yes, it's important to tell the stories of the Chinese Canadian community, but what about how they intersected with others? And so that's really our mission is to make sure, you know, we represent these stories and make sure we get into the curriculum, um, try to work out with students and teachers in, in schools to make sure that they're aware of these uh, resources. Yeah, well, just jumping off of your last point, what have you learned about how to build relationships across different Asian Canadian and non-Asian communities? Why is that important and what are the challenges? So I think the fundamental uh, way of engaging is if you're willing to listen, 
right? You have to go, you know, in a spirit of respect uh, and uh, curiosity and open-mindedness. And I think in Santa and my, we're, we're of Japanese and Chinese culture. And that was not sort of easy at the first place. My, my grandmother was in, you know, China. My, my, my mother remembers as a kid, you know, being in World War II when the Japanese, you know, had invaded China. So they were not predisposed to like my bringing back home a Japanese, even if it's a Japanese-Canadian boyfriend, <laughs> right? But uh, I think he showed respect for them. And um, in turn, when I've dealt with friends, I think I'd also helped. I grew up in Montreal in the Anglophone community because in Montreal, there's only 20% of the population are Anglophone or Allophone, really, meaning from other country, uh, language altogether, and then 80% are Francophone. So I had a lot of friends growing up of all different cultures, you know, uh, African American to, you know, Black Canadian. Uh, Greek, Dutch, um, Korean, Chinese, all the And so we hung together and we really enjoyed uh, each other's as just as people, right? And then um, when I met others, particularly in, in the States, I think we had the commonality that we're all immigrants. And of course, Asian cultures, yes, there are nuances. There have been wars. I mean, that's a human failing, of course. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that whole group of people, you know, are not worth knowing, right? And when you trade stories, you get to understand where your commonalities are. But then you can also see how, you know, a particular region, a particular history has influenced, you know, the way they think or the way they may carry out uh, they. You see, I'm doing the they. But, you know, way a, a particular culture might do in that setting, you know, in Korea or in Hong Kong or in China, you know. Or in India, you know there are multiple languages and multiple communities, right? It's really just it's partly geographic, right? It's your comfort zone. You grew up in a, it becomes bigger. You know, if there's enough of an institution, a central government, then yeah, maybe you can sort of expand that particular way of doing things across a greater geographic region, right? But at heart, we are people. And I think if we come in that, then we can be willing to learn. And I've been lucky to, to travel. I spent... Um, sometime living in Hong Kong. I spent two months in, in, in Japan with Santa when he did a, the only time he did a sabbatical, you know, and I made my way around, tried to learn Japanese, but, um, and you realize that, yes, people live slightly differently, but it's because of the circumstances, the basic principles the same, right, uh, of wanting people to prosper and family's important and that, you know, you uh, you protect yourself, but you also try to be polite and generous to other people. But sometimes the boundaries are 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 more defined, you know, in Japan or in England because you're seeing their island nations, and so there's not a lot of space. So you just like want to be a little bit more polite. But in North America, we have a lot of space, so we're much more open, right? And we say what we feel, and we're not so, you know. And it's it's partly just that geography of how you're growing up. So I think if you respect that and you listen and you ask without having any judgment in your voice and it's difficult sometimes because you you know we're human beings we synthesize things right and we come and we sort of make assumptions because that's how we sort of have to operate and make a decision right and so you're going to have that baggage but you can sort of say that that's you can understand that that's based on a limited set of facts and so you even if you say it you know and you may show your bias but you say it, but 
I know this comes because I've grown up in this setting, you know, what's it been like for you? Or, you know, is this because why is that? And I've noticed this or, you know, and you can have an interesting conversation to say, say, oh, at heart, it is different. No, at heart, it's the same. Some of it is different. But then you when you realize how it came to be, then it's like it doesn't really matter. Right. It has value. It may not hold that the way of doing things. It may not hold always in a different setting, you know, but it had value and it met the purpose at the time. And some there's some parts of the way it was doing, you know, like for our Asian immigrant. Some of it is still useful now here, you know, in terms of that, the, the community and the family, extended family. And, you know, it may not be that we want to be exactly, of course, we never want to be exactly like our parents. But... Um, if we understand it, then we can be more forgiving and more respectful, and then we can in turn have other people be interested in us and more forgiving and more, you know, willing to hear what we have to say. So how can organizations like PCHC engage more leaders and participants and stakeholders in community work? So I think um, it's a challenge. It's a challenge for many organizations. So you do, I think, have to have all ages at the table um, because you do have people who are maybe newly retired and they have time and they've experience, right? And they can do some of the mentoring. And, um, you know, I think we're working well because we are very blessed with some semi-retired older people in their 50s, 60s, 70s who are willing to engage and give their time. And then we try to draw in students. So we've had some students from ACAM. We've had some students from the Community Engaged um, Center for Learning. And they love having the ear of, you know, generous older mentors who take them out to lunch or show them a different community, you know, and give them time and advice. And I think that is much more successful because then we can take the best of what everybody has to offer and synthesize it together, right? Um, at the same time, you need to make sure you have a diverse board and you have to respect what people's time commitments are, but also people's um, skill sets and comfort levels. And if you can um, see what they have to bring and employ and give them a little bit of autonomy to explore that, that it doesn't have to be just a certain way, I think it's stronger for the organization in the long term, because you're never gonna be able to have one person. That that means that organization is not growing, right? You know, and um, I think because we are not afraid to ask, and that's the thing is you have to ask, but you can also be willing to have rejection, you know, and not be hurt by it. It's just, you can't take anything personally. You know, you try, and if it doesn't work, then you go on to the next person, you know, or if that person um, shows different skill sets, didn't work out, but has these wonderful, then it's great, you know, then you let that person go with their passion, but then you can find out and say, okay, what gaps do you need? And, and, and let's talk to people and, and keep doing it. But you, you do need to have that investment of time to listen and to have that, um, you know, willing to tell your mission you know, not just do, but it, it's hard, it's hard work, you know, and, and you, it, it's taken a lot of pain and sweat and took a lot of work for a couple of people who were willing to stick with it because in the early years, you sort of have to rely on the first few people for whom it's really a passion, right? And they devote and it's amazing, you know, and that's why I'm engaged with it because I see the early people, what they've done and I'm like, it's too important to let this die. 
you know, and even as we move towards the University of Michigan, I'm sort of like, I'm going to just take a little time not to, you know, I'll commute back and forth and I'll not move right away because I want to make sure that we bring it ready to the next stage. We've got a new exhibition coming in next spring, Southeast Asian Refugees, which again, it's, it's, it's brought out of University of Winnipeg, but somebody who heard of our reputation through the museum, Pier, actually Pier 21, Museum of Immigration. They knew that we were growing and they, because of the past work of people, they said, do you want to be part of this and help to bring it to BC? And so, so this is, um, you know, but serendipity, it's a bit work, but it's respecting what people have done in the past and trying to honor it by pushing it forward. What is the role of organizations like PCHC in broader movements for racial justice and reconciliation? So it, it might not be obvious at the first, and I think this is something that came to us as we worked in the last two or three years. You know, of course it's important to tell stories because we think, you know, history should be accurate. But beyond that, we realize actually the reason why do we do it is about, you know, equity racial equity and representation means that we have a system then that's responsive to everybody. And so I think if we do our job right and we make sure we keep telling stories of other people and we listen to the stories and we say, we need to share. And you know, early stages, of course, we focus a little bit more on Chinese because those were the people who had time and who were willing to commit. But we're trying to diversify that and it's really important. So we work a lot, really hard to try to identify people in different communities and bring them aboard because it's not helpful if you have only certain community represented at the table, even if they're well-meaning, right? It's just because we have limited knowledge, right? And so we, and ways of thinking. Um, and so I think what this organization does is it mirrors how we need to work together so that that type of principle and that those stories and those, um, you know, uh, commitments to equity are reflected and taken uh, into other organizations into government. And if we do our job training and mentoring and encouraging young people to get involved, we can say, you need a voice, we need to hear your voice. And for what it's worth, this is what we experience. We, you know, take some of this advice, but you're gonna find new ways of doing it. But, you know, we can be encouraging, we can be mentoring, but we're not like, okay, you know, you're a, tabula rasa, blank slate, and we're going to make you this way. No, it's just you're evolving. You know, we want to evolve with you. And I think that's the thing is that inter intergenerational interaction, you know, that we value as at our core. We're trying to do that. And that's what needs to be done, I think, at, at every level of society and government. And you've been involved in Asian American and Canadian community work for quite some time. How have you seen the conversations shift, especially in recent years with COVID-19 and the rise of anti-Asian racism? So the conversations uh, on Asian, Canadian, Asian American issues are quite similar. And I would say that it's now going beyond the actual history of how those played out in each country. And because we have people going back and forth across the border, and as I mentioned before, you know, we have, uh, I have had Asian American friends who came in, like what we do in supporting what we're doing in Asian uh, Canadian studies here. It's that we realize we have to talk together because it's the same root of, you know, if the system is built, you know, with a bias towards a particular way of thinking and sort of, you know, Eurocentric, 
um, even if well-meaning, Eurocentric, but it still is. And so not all the voices at the table. We need to recognize that and then also not assume that we have exactly the same issues north and south of the border. You know, it is the same, you know, problem of, you know, othering, but it may play out a little differently. And so we do have to have that conversation understand, but also understand that, you know, certain solutions that have come come up in, in, in the American context will not work exactly the same way for the Canadian context, you know, because the, 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 the history is, you know, devolved, is involved different. But you can look and say what has worked well in the other country and say, well, why don't we try some of that, you know? And like, for instance, what was shocking to me was when I came back and realized there was no data collection, no race specific, no, gen- you know, okay, it's just gender. And, you know, under the law, sort of guise of privacy or, oh, there's not a problem on it. But it's actually, that's how it worked. And I'm not saying it's going to work exactly the same way, but because there were census data and because there was in, in the American system, and you could see, you know, uh, uh, ethnic specific or, you know, race specific, you could actually show that there was disparate impact, right? That was sort of the biggest, you know, way of saying, if you look at the statistics and you say disparate, disparate impact, you know, of existing policies, existing institutions, it's to signal that there's something's wrong here. You know, if the system was perfect, completely equal, why do we have the disparate impact? That, so that's actually useful to say. Now, the solution to that may not be exactly the same. You know, you don't want to have quota systems and, you know, U.S. tried that and then they've, you know, done away with it. Because, of course, you can't do quotas, you know. You've got to have that sort of interplay between the individual pop, you know, solution and, and the individuals that are in that situation that meet. But also, you know, looking systemically, sort of like what are the barriers and can we lower them and, you know, because the end goal is that we want to educate as many people, you know, as we can in different systems and that we make sure that whatever educational institutions we have or government entities or social, you know, are accountable, reflective, responsive, and fully channeling and harnessing all the talents of, you know, everybody living in Canada and the U.S. How can institutions like universities and nonprofits better respond to calls for representation and diversity? How can we respond? So I think nonprofits and educational institutions, um, they can, I think, respond in two ways to the calls for better representation. On the one hand, I think, you know, if they have a fairly diverse uh, student population, they can certainly engage them. If they have a diverse faculty staff, they can uh, identify people who can step up into you know, maybe positions of power, representation, whether it's at the government or whether there's advisory councils. I think we can certainly be champions for that. But also the other part of it is that uh, regardless of the diversity of the institution, um, I think we can, we, and we actually do uh, have the responsibility of making sure that we are teaching and representing multiple viewpoints, you know, maybe not necessarily in one course, but overall in the course offerings and and also making sure that our faculty are diverse you know actually diversity everywhere but particularly you know if if we've got people teaching we need to make sure that we are uh, representing uh, different viewpoints in the teaching right because how one sees history or sees uh, 
language or sociology or, is going to be affected by the culture in which they grew up in, right? Now you can, and even science, I would say, yes, it seems deceptively that it's, you know, objective criteria, but actually it's also how do you choose what criteria to look at? How do you choose which experiment to do? You know, and how, you know, uh, particularly in healthcare, you know, who ha who's been the test subject? You know, have we had diversity? Have we tested? Because you actually see that there are some, you know, differences amongst population in terms of sensitivity, you know, to certain drugs and things like that, you know, and the interplay between, you know, or just figuring out treatment modalities, you know, what will work or not work. So it's so important, you know, where we at the inst you know, educational institution, we're, we're a knowledge, you know, economy here. And so we got to make sure that that knowledge is, you know, uh, comprehensive. And if we do not have all the voices at the table and, and, and looking and, and, and experimenting and um, teaching or transmitting, then, you know, we are not selling a fully working product. It, it's, it's, it's got gaps. So I think that's the biggest thing. The challenge is to make sure that the universities are trying to meet the gaps and, and, and you know, being champions, you know, as, as the graduates go out, but also um, making sure that, you know, we keep ourselves honest and representative of the wider society. Where do you see the future of Asian Canadian community work at the university going? So I think the importance of uh, ACAM and um, other committees around the university that are, and, and departments that are, that are invested in community engagement have to make sure that again our house is in order in that we are actively working on any barriers for you know internal advancement or representation you know glass ceiling issue or bamboo ceiling issues right um but that we're also sympathetic to you know other communities and that as we are um working in the community that we are trying to be a little more intentional not just seat of your pants you know sometimes you have to that's just the way it is and it's you know it's great that people do it because you know it's better than not having the work done but then i think um the case needs to be made it's it's gone there a little bit because now we have the center for um asian community research and engagement acre um that basically formalizes uh the importance of having very intentional community engagement work you know with Asian Canadian communities um, and also with people you know of, of those backgrounds at the university I think the future will be that um, there is maybe more support from central administration because I think there's been a need and, and, and understanding and recognition I mean partly because Santa's been here but it's not just him it's 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 you know all these little building blocks have come in. The fact that there was an Asian Canadian Community Engagement Ad Hoc Committee from the beginning. And then, you know, then because of the pandemic and realizing, oh, there's still a lot of racism out there and assumption that, you know, UBC took the lead of doing the National Forum on Asian Canadian Dom. First to ever happen, you know, and virtually made it possible for everybody to participate.
So I think it's really important for the universities then to, as a public institution, to offer up some of their public resources, right? It, the, it's from the taxpayer, taxpayers, all of us. And so it's important that, you know, we, we have these resources uh, devoted to Ipok communities too, where they've been not at, not at the table. You know, and lovely. It will be lovely when we're the, at the day where it's all equal. That's the end goal, is that where we're all valued, we're all making contributions, and the rules are not just been set by white men, you know, from a certain hundred years ago, right? Because objectively, those are the rules. But who put them in? And why were they in? Are they achieving our objective? What are our objectives? Why are we existing? What do we want to achieve, you know? So we just have to make sure that we're constantly, you know, evolving. And I think that's the importance of the community engagement from the Asian Canadian and other uh, communities of color, that there is feedback to say, hey, this is the mission. These are the purpose. This is what needs to be done to fully realize that mission that was you know, put into place 100 something years ago. That's the end of the questions we have. Is there anything you feel like we might have missed that you really want to talk about? <laughs> no, I think, uh, well, I'd like to ask you, sort of, but maybe you can't. You're not allowed to. Okay, say back. Um, you know, I, I would actually think that we should have a podcast <laughs> where we talk to students who come through, you know, maybe as you're graduating and say, you know, reflecting back, you know, has the ACAM curriculum, have the ACAM activities, you know, made a difference? Have they made a difference? You know, do you think they've done their job? Do you think they could do things better? I mean, I think those are conversations that we need to have, not just from those who've gone before and say, oh, well, back in our day, we didn't have this, and now, you know, this is why we did it, and isn't it great what we're doing? And they're like, yeah, but maybe the way we're doing things could be better. So I think every once in a while, it's good to have this sort of, you know, self-check and sort of saying, okay, have we met, you know, customer satisfaction, right? I mean, it, there is that sense in the States, and I think it's it's actually important. It's not that it's it's only about customer satisfaction, but, you know, if, if you're putting out there because you want to make that impact, you got to check, is that impact going where you want it to? Has it made that impact? And the only way you're going to do that is if we listen back to, you know, those who have come through the program and sort of say, yeah, I really, you know, I think most of the time they'll say, oh, it's been fantastic and life-changing and, you know, empowering, you know, and that's what we hope. And if it's, if enough people are saying that, then I think, you know, we can be happy that, you know, the program is going the way it is and, and is doing the right things and, and making a positive impact in the community, you know, UBC, Vancouver, BC, the world. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. You just heard an interview with Wendy Yip, outgoing university ambassador and president of PCHC MOM. You can find out more about her and her work in the links in the show notes. Thank you for listening to this episode, which was made possible by the Chan Family Foundation's generous support. If you have an idea for an episode of the ACAM podcast, we'd love to hear from you. Send us your ideas by emailing us at acam.program at ebc.ca. To be notified when the next podcast episode is released, and to stay up to date on all things ACAM, please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at UBCACAM, 
and like us on Facebook at Asian Canadian and Asian Migration Studies, UBC.